0: Well, if you haven't been with us uh, the past uh, few weeks or or months, we've been uh, actually throughout the course of the fall, we've been working our way through the book of James. Um, So we've been taking a section of verses at a time each week, and now we've made it to the final chapter, uh, chapter 5. And we're going to look this morning at the first six verses of chapter 5, so James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bible, or if you just turn in your bulletin, you'll see the passage printed there. And I'm going to go ahead and read that for us, and then pray for us, and then we'll we'll talk about these verses. Listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Uh, let's go before him now and ask for help as we look at this passage together. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, would you be kind and merciful and gracious to us this morning? Um, These are hard words that we just read, um, but we pray that you would allow us in them uh, to see Jesus and to see what he's done for us and to see how that good news of His salvation can really change any of us today. Um, And we need to be changed by this good news. So Father, come by Your Spirit and take Your Word, we pray, and apply it to our hearts. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So James, um, it's a really short book. This brief letter that James wrote to believers. Um, In fact, this past week, I'm going to sit down and just read through the whole thing together. It took me 12 minutes. Um, You can read it, and I'm not a fast reader. You can read it fairly quickly. It's brief. Um, It's a short book, but in such a short book, this is now the fourth time James has brought our attention and to money and possessions and written about our material wealth he wrote about it in chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 in chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 in chapter 2 verses 14 through 17 and now again in chapter 5 1 through 6 and that's for such a short book that's a lot of repetition right But do you know that when you read through the gospels the only subject Jesus spoke about more than money was the kingdom of God. I, I, I mean, he spoke about money way more than he ever talked about sex or relationships or lying or any other topic you could think of. And so just trying to get, get my mind right. Why is so much attention given uh, to money and material wealth, and why is the Bible so repetitious when it comes to this subject? Well, I, I think one big reason is that our, the love of and the desire for wealth it can sneak up on us uh, very subtly and very quietly, and if we aren't consistently and constantly and vigilantly paying attention, it It'll come and catch us off guard. It'll catch us unsuspecting, all the while unleashing an incredible, dangerous, and destructive power in our lives. Remember that old fable about how you um, how to boil a frog? Um, you, you put the fro- frog in the pot, and you let the water slowly but gradually come up to a boil. And the lesson of the fable is... Is pretty clear. You know, if you put the frog directly into a pot of boiling water, it's going to immediately sense the danger and feel the danger and it's going to jump out of the pot. But if you just slowly and gradually heat up the water and bring it to boil, the the frog won't perceive the danger, um, right, until it's too late. James keeps repeating himself about the dangers of wealth. He keeps coming back to this subject. Because he doesn't want us caught off guard. He's not saying money or material possessions or wealth itself is bad. I mean, it can be used for a lot of good, it can be used to bring a lot of healing and restoration to a broken world. But James is saying what we need is we need to be suspicious about our relationship to material wealth, we need to be on guard. So that it doesn't sneak up on us and destroy us. So we're not that frog in the pot with the boiling water. So here's what we're going to do with this passage. We're going to look at wealth's power. We're going to see wealth's power to, uh, wealth's power to rot our hearts. We're going to see wealth's power to rob us of comfort. And then finally, I want us to talk together about how we can break the power of wealth in our lives. So I know it's shocking, but there are three points this morning. Um, Wealth's power to rot our hearts, wealth's power to rob us of comfort, and how to break wealth's power. So, first, wealth's power to rot our hearts. James began these verses by writing that hoarding money and possessions will eat your flesh like fire. It's in verse 3. And that's a terrifying image. I mean, flames with teeth that will bite into you and devour you. And here's the deal. If we don't learn to ask hard questions about our relationship to to our wealth, our hearts will rot like moth-eaten garments, James is saying in verse 2. Our hearts will corrode like gold gold and silver, he writes in verse 3. And here's why I say we have to learn how to ask questions about our wealth. James seems to be very clearly in this passage talking about hoarding wealth and using wealth in a selfish kind of way. Um, but here's the question. Where is the line? Right, Where is the line between hoarding wealth, which the Bible sees as evil, and saving, which the Bible seems as, says is as wise? I mean, where, when have we crossed the line from necessity to living in the luxury that James described in verse 5? Or when have we crossed the line between convenience and the self-indulgence that he wrote about in verse 5? Um, i just give you a little window into my soul um, and be honest with you. This really, really frustrates me about James. Because I want to know where the line is. I want to know what the number is, I want to know what the percentage is, right? What amount of money in my clothing budget crosses the line between convenience and self-indulgence? What amount of money spent on a family vacation crosses the line between necessity and luxury? Where's the line for the type of car that I drive, or the house I buy, or the neighborhood I live in? or? What I spend on Christmas presents is coming up quickly. Um, Why doesn't the Bible give us that line? I think it's because the Bible is written for all peoples and all cultures at all times. And to be quite honest with you, that line may be very different for me than it is for you. So what does all this mean? It means we all have to be asking the questions, though. We all have to be asking the questions about our relationship to our material wealth. We need to have a healthy suspicion about our relationship to our wealth and ask questions about everything in our lives, about all of our possessions. We have to ask, is this saving or is this hoarding? Is this a necessity or is this a luxury? Is this a convenience or a self-indulgence? Because see, I think James would say to us, if we aren't asking those kinds of questions We are not on guard. We aren't paying close enough attention to something that has the power to rot our hearts and eat our flesh like fire. I'm not telling you anything you don't know this morning. Every one of us in this room, deep in our hearts, we sense a real need and hunger within us to feel significant. And to feel secure, and we want our lives to have meaning and value and worth. And you know what? I, this is not going to get you off guard, but I would say to you for the Christian, we have all of that in Jesus. But even as Christians, we can forget God's love and His grace. And we can start looking for those things in our wealth. And listen, if we aren't careful, and we aren't asking questions and being suspicious, the extremely powerful undertow of a, va- of a value system in our culture that says your bank account defines you and your wealth defines your worth and significance and makes you secure, if we're not paying attention and asking the questions, that will just sweep us away. Switch up metaphors just a bit. One author puts it like this, and I bring it up because... I'm a coffee addict. Um, He says, acquiring wealth to cure the problem of meaninglessness is like drinking coffee to solve the problem of exhaustion. It can mask the problem, but it cannot cure it. And see, if we try to cure our hearts with wealth, James is saying your heart is going to begin to rot. And that rottenness will spread throughout your life. It spreads into our relationships, James says in verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, they are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. When wealth rots your heart, it spreads and it spreads into your relationships. And you stop seeing people as people. And you start seeing them as objects to be used to get what you want. And you stop treating people with justice. And you stop treating people with fairness and grace. And it keeps on spreading throughout our lives, right? It fills you with anxiety. And a fear of loss that you carry with you. And it fills you with bitterness and envy for what others have. You know, a particular publisher was working on a, on publishing a series of books on what are commonly called the, uh, the seven deadly sins. Things like lust and anger and gluttony and sloth and envy and so on. And this publisher asked Joseph Epstein, um, I don't know if any of you know him, but many consider him to be the greatest essayist in the English language. And um, they asked him to write the book on envy. And here's the the short sentence that Epstein used to start that book on envy. He said, Of the seven deadly sins... Only envy is no fun at all, right? Lust, anger, gluttony, sloth, they all have their momentary pleasures. But sneaky, subtle, deceptive, and very hard to catch envy, when it gets its teeth in you, it only leaves you miserable, it only makes you miserable. This is what James is saying about wealth. It will rot your heart. When it gets its teeth in you, it will bite into you like flames and devour you. It, it, gangrene is when a part of your body tissue dies, um, it, it rots, and it usually affects one of your extremities first, right? Your fingers, your toes, your nose, something like that. But it's going to spread if it isn't stopped. And what's the treatment for a gangrenous toe, finger, leg, hand? I don't know. It's severe. It's amputation. Because gangrene, the rotten, dying flesh given a chance, will begin to spread its death. And it will take your life. So James is saying, be on guard. If we're ever going to stop the power of wealth to rot our hearts, it begins with learning to ask questions about our material wealth. Um, Is this a necessity or a luxury, a convenience or self-indulgence, and so on? All right, let's move on and talk second about wealth's power to rob your comfort. See, the irony is that many of us look to our wealth for our comfort, to make us feel safe, to make us feel secure or to provide pleasure. And James is saying wealth actually has the power to rob you of your comfort in this life. See, follow me here. At the end of verse 3, James wrote, you have laid up treasure in the last days. Listen, I wish I could do more with this than, I, than we have time this morning, but that little phrase, in the last days, that's a significant phrase in the Bible. The last days are the days in between Jesus' first coming and His second coming. And if you are resting in Jesus, those words are never written in the Bible to scare you. If you are resting in Jesus, those words are meant to be your comfort, your hope, your joy in this life. Why why is that? This world, it is broken And it is filled with pain and sorrow and hurt and misery. And the longer you live, the older you get, the more its jagged teeth will press into you and cut into you. And our comfort and our hope is that these are in fact the last days. Right? Jesus will return. And in that day, He will come and He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death will be no more. And there will be no more crying or pain or sorrow in that day. Forever. The struggle will have ended. Right? And the wedding feast of the Lamb will have commenced. So yeah, in this life, if this life is all there is, then you better get what comfort you can now. And lay up your treasure now, if this life is all there is. And step on others to get ahead. And live in luxury and self-indulgence now, because this is it. But if these are the last days, and Jesus is coming back, and if He's going to make everything that is wrong in this world right again, then you can be comforted right now, in the midst of brokenness. And you can let go of your fear, and you can let go of your regrets, and let go of your bitterness, and you can let go of your envy if these are the last days. You know, the Puritans used to say that we were meant to live with one eye on earth and one eye on heaven. And if you take your eye off of that coming horizon, off of heaven, you'll be robbed of your comfort In these last days, the comfort you hope to gain in wealth, it will constantly elude you. Now, I need to mention one more thing about wealth's power to rob our comfort before we end here. James wrote this letter. I mentioned this a couple of times. James wrote this letter to believers. He wrote this letter to Christians. In verse 7, which immediately follows this passage, James wrote, Be patient, therefore, brothers. He's writing to brothers, to Christians. And that makes this little section of verses confusing. Because this is by far the harshest passage in the book of James. And he is using the language of judgment when he's talking to Christians. Language like evidence against you. A day of slaughter. Why would James use that kind of language when talking with Christians? You know, according to the Bible, one of the primary indicators of our spiritual health is our relationship to our money and our wealth. Are we using it to build our own kingdoms or are we using it to build Jesus' kingdom? Money is a litmus test, the Bible says, that reveals the condition of our hearts. And here's why James uses this language with Christians. He's saying if you don't adjust your lifestyle to be generous with your wealth, if you pursue wealth as your comfort and security, if you use your wealth for yourself and not to bring healing to others, James is saying, you will begin to lose your assurance. You will begin to lose your assurance. And rather than you and I see that as a horrible thing, you need to see God's grace in that. It is his grace to us that he would come and unsettle us and grab our attention and wake us up to the danger that is so very hard for us to perceive the water so slowly, but gradually coming to a boil. And God wakes us up so that verse one, we will weep and we will howl and we will repent and we will come to Jesus so that we will get our assurance back. Look, I'm not suggesting that this is the only reason we can lose our comfort of assurance. Our our dispositions and temperaments can play a role. Our poor thinking and theological reflection can play a role in it. Um, Your past, your present experience can, can play a role in it. But surely I'm not alone in having experienced this. Because I know that when I've gone on for an extended period of time in disobedience and when my and when my heart has been hardened that's when the doubts and the fears start creeping in and coming back and that's God's grace and his mercy spurring us to go and get our assurance back and get our comfort back in the gospel the way we handle our wealth reveals the condition of our hearts and if we fail To follow God in obedience with our wealth, James is saying, we'll be robbed of the the comfort of our assurance. Joseph Epstein, the author I just quoted, um, I'm going to quote him again. He asked this question in his little book on envy. He wrote, is envy a feeling? Is it an emotion, a sin, a temperamental disposition or a worldview? Epstein goes on. Might it also be a Rorschach test? Tell what you envy, and you ve- reveal a great deal about yourself. The Rorschach test is that inkblot test um, where the psychologist shows you this picture of an inkblot um, and asks you what picture you see. And supposedly, from your answer, it reveals um, your underlying thoughts, your underlying desires, and motives, and so on. Um, tell what you envy, and you will reveal a great deal about the condition of your heart. And I think it's a great metaphor and image. Um, And I think Epstein is a brilliant writer, but it's it's not original, Um, right? You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter six? He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Name your treasure and you reveal the hopes and loves, the motives and desires of your hearts. Tell what luxury, what self-indulgence, what you're anxious to get and have and so afraid to lose in this life. And you reveal a great deal about yourself. And if this is true, then all you really need to do is go look at your checking account statement and your savings account statement and your credit card statement and see where your heart and your desires and your hopes Really are. We'll reveal a great deal about your heart. Where have we laid up our treasure in these last days? Be on guard, James is saying, because wealth has the power to rob you of your comfort. Okay, finally, let's talk about how to break wealth's power. We're all susceptible to this sneaky but dangerous power of wealth. Um, So, how can this power of wealth be broken in our lives? I'm going to give you the brief answer and then just a few applications to end this morning. The answer to how to break wealth's power comes in the final verse of this passage, in verse 6. And it's a really fascinating verse. Our translation, which attempts to be pretty literal in its translation, um, puts it like this. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. But read 10 different translations of the Bible and you get 10 different uh, translations of these, uh, these verses, um, slightly different renderings. And many translators end up giving us a translation that makes it sound as if James is condemning the rich for murdering the poor. But that doesn't work for two reasons. Right? First, he's not talking about the murder of a group, but of one person, the righteous person. Secondly, if he was talking about the poor, he would have said they could not resist you. But that's not what he wrote. He wrote about the righteous person, singular, who did not or would not resist you. He's talking about Jesus, right? He's saying when we hoard our wealth, when, it lead, when our relationship to our wealth leads us to treat others unfairly because of our greed. When we take our money and we spend it on ourselves and our own luxuries and our own self-indulgences, we're opposing The very one who did not resist us, but died for us and freely gave his life for us. Do you remember that that terrifying image at the beginning of the passage, the eating of your flesh like fire? Let me try to bring this full circle for us. From the beginning of Scripture, fire in the Bible has been a symbol of judgment. After Adam and Eve fell from righteousness, they were banished from the garden. You remember that? And an angel with a fiery, flaming sword of judgment guarded the way back to the tree of life. And here's what all that meant. It meant that the only way back to the tree of life was to go through the fiery, flaming sword of God's justice and judgment. And now James is reminding us the righteous one, God's own son, freely and voluntarily went through those flames. And he was devoured for us in our place. The sword fell on him in our place and it cut him to shreds so that we would be spared. Because he didn't resist us, but because he gave himself freely, now we. James is saying can come to the tree of life forever under the banner of God's love. Years and years ago in California, um, there was a story of a father who took his his boys camping uh, one weekend. And there was a wildfire in California at the time, but it was miles and miles away and it was moving away from them. But they were unaware when they had gone camping that day but the winds had shifted. And they woke up in the middle of the night because they could hear the roar of that fire coming towards them. And they got out of their tent and they could see its glow in the distance still a ways off. Um, and it was terrifying to them because they knew they couldn't make the several miles hike back to their vehicle And make it safely away from this place. And so this quick-thinking father, he took sticks and logs out of their campfire and he started his own wildfire right there in that place. And in a huge circle, he lit every blade of grass and every shrub on fire and he torched this huge section of earth. And then they got in the middle of that circle and they waited. And when the raging forest fire finally got to them, it passed them by, untouched and unharmed, because there was nothing left for that fire to consume. James was saying to these Christians and to us, our hearts are prone to wonder, they're prone to forget God's love, as the great hymn goes. And usually the first indicator, the first place it gets revealed, is in how we handle our money. But he's also saying this, hear the good news. God himself, even though you've forgotten him, and I've forgotten him, he never forgot you. And he is the righteous one who came and voluntarily took the flames of judgment for you. So that there would be nothing left to consume So that there is now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus, because he did not resist and he was consumed and devoured for you to know God's love and justice were both satisfied when the flaming sword of God's judgment fell on Jesus and consumed God's own son. It's in that narrative and that story that our need and hunger for significance and love and meaning and value and worth and security, they are satisfied. And if we come to him, there is freedom for us. And let me give you three brief applications as we end on what this gospel sets us free to do. The first thing it sets us free to do is rest. Right. So often when Jesus spoke about money, he drew our attention to the fact that God is your father. Right. Who knows what you need before you ever ask him for it. And he gives his he longs to give his children good gifts. He is the king who is also your father. I can't remember if I shared this story or not. I share all my stories multiple times without remembering it. But um, this friend of mine one time told me he was in Walmart when he was shopping. He heard this kid screaming in an aisle. And and at first he thought it was the typical, I'm throwing a tantrum because I didn't get what I wanted. But then he realized that this child, this particular child, was left alone and lost. He was all alone on this aisle. And he got separated from his mother. And he was just screaming, face red. Panicked, he didn't know what to do. And that mother came running around the end of the aisle. And he, he said he watched it happen. And she scooped him up in her arms. And he said it was unbelievable. He said from sheer panic and terror. And in 30 seconds in his mother's arms. He was fast asleep. Sound asleep. You were made to come home. And rest in the arms of your heavenly father. You are made to stop your striving. And rest in Jesus. Rest in him. So that's the first thing. But second. And this is going to sound weird following that. But the gospel also sets you free at the same time. To pursue something. Listen Jesus didn't only tell us to rest when He, he talked about Money. He also told us to pursue a different kind of kingdom. right? To seek first the kingdom of God. Where is your heart? You are made to be a part of something bigger than yourself. You are made to forget yourself in a kingdom far bigger than yourself and cease living for the small world of our self-indulgences. C.S. Lewis put it like this. If you aim at heaven... you will get get earth thrown into. But if you aim at earth, you will get neither. Rest and pursue God's kingdom. Third, the gospel sets you free to give. You are made to give. And when you give generously, you are most clearly and pointedly resembling Jesus who gave up everything for you. There's this crazy story in the book of Acts in chapter 4, you should look it up later. It's in the life of the early church. And Peter and John in that passage, they were threatened by the authorities of that day to stop speaking about Jesus upon threat of losing their lives. And they were terrified. Rightly so. They were scared. Right? so they went back to their friends, these disciples, and they got together and they prayed together. And it says this. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Unfortunately, for a lot of us, when we hear filled with the Holy Spirit, we think, uh uh-oh, weird stuff we don't understand, right? But all it was, was the Spirit coming to them and assuring them of God's love and pleasure and delight in them through Jesus. And do you know what the result of that was? Of being assured of God's love and His pleasure in them and His delight in them. That result comes in the very next verse. No one claimed that any of His possessions was His own, but they shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. When you get assured of God's love and grace for you in Jesus, it it spills out of your life in radical sacrificial generosity. Because listen, the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills Right, who threw the stars in the night sky in their place and measures the hollows of the, of the seas in the hollow of his hand? He liquidated his treasure for you. He gave his only son for you. And when that truth sinks into your heart, it sets you free. And it sets you free to be like him, and it sets you free to give. So rest, pursue, and give. Let's pray together.